0: Hey, I'm Chuck. And I'm Josh. And we're the host of Stuff You Should Know, the podcast. That's right. And if you're into understanding cool and unusual and seemingly ordinary and even boring things that are made interesting, you should check us out. Please and thank you. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, anywhere you get podcasts.
1: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, I gotta be honest with you, I experienced some stuff mom never told you. Interview envy last week when you
2: got to talk to Anne-Marie Slaughter. Yeah, Anne-Marie Slaughter is amazing. Um I tend to not be very intimidated by celebrities, by politicians, by
0: Queen Other Elizabeth.
2: Queen Elizabeth, because we hang out all the time. Well, oh so yeah, that's the secret there. Um, but around Anne Marie Slaughter, I clammed up and became a total stuttering fool. I felt like I felt like I blew it up in my mind. I'm sure. Um, but she is an author. She's a former diplomat. She worked under Hillary Clinton in the State Department. Um, she has an incredible background uh, as a leader. And now she is the CEO of the New America Think Tank, which is a nonpartisan, uh, organization that's basically seeking to change the world. No big deal. Um, but I got to the office of New America in New York after the, you and I had gone to the United State of Women's Summit in Washington DC, where Anne Marie Slaughter spoke on a panel about caregiving with uh Sminty All Star Fave I Jin Poo. She of uh, Support the Caregivers <laughs> efforts in this country and abroad. And uh Amory Slaughter swept into the office and it's again blown up in my head and i just saw like disney birds floating around her because i have such great admiration for this woman
1: yeah i love how uh, these are the kinds of stuff i've never told you celebrities we have i mean obviously there's beyonce but then we also have like foreign policy wonks oh yeah like anne marie slaughter and she uh I, I'm so glad that you got to talk to her because um she, as she says in her interview, um, is a foreign policy expert, not a gender expert. But it just so happens that she went viral in 2012 with this Atlantic magazine article that uh, a lot of stuff. I've never told you listeners may have read or, or uh, have heard about headlined why women still can't have it all. And it really broke the internet before Kim Kardashian came around. Anne Marie Slaughter, my friends, broke the internet. I feel like that
2: is such a, a much more worthy breaker of the internet. Yes, uh, I'm, not to get not to get all pitting women against each other. <laughs> We're not here to do that. Well, and that's something uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter knows well, the
1: whole media pitting women against women.
2: Yeah, because if you aren't familiar with Slaughter's work as a diplomat, or if you're not familiar with her work in The Atlantic, she's also written in so many other places. She's written several forewords for several fantastic books. Um, yeah, you might know her simply from... The media and the blogosphere pitting her against Sheryl Sandberg. I mean, literally when you Google the two women's names together, the suggested search that pops up is Anne Marie Slaughter versus Sheryl Sandberg. And that seems, that seems silly. Why are two high-powered women, what, we've never seen this before. Two oh. high-powered women being pitted against each other in the Certainly news? Certainly not. Um, but basically, uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter's philosophies, I keep saying her full name because she is a celebrity to me. Uh, well that's such a strong name it too. Is such a strong, wonderful name. Um, sh- her philosophies have definitely evolved over time as she, her philosophies about women in the workplace, about caregiving, uh, gender roles, these things have evolved and, uh, they don't put her in line with Sheryl Sandberg's philosophy. Of leaning in, but of
1: course the media is so reductionist. So in addition to pitting Amory Slaughter versus Cheryl Sandberg, it was then framed as, "Oh, this is you know lean in versus lean out," which it's not yeah. at all, and it does a disservice to a lot of the complexity and nuance that uh, Slaughter has proposed in a lot of her writing, um, and. As a millennial feminist listening to the conversation you had with her, I also found it really instructive f- to hear the experience of a woman who was blazing through academia all the way to, uh, you know, being the dean of Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs and previously being at Harvard Law School, this woman at the top of her game, um, dealing with. Similar workplace issues that we still talk about, but approaching them in with a different feminist philosophy, which I don't want to get into because I don't want to like spoil what she's going to talk about. Um, But I, I think it's easy for us to sometimes forget how things were not so long ago.
2: Yeah. And the different responses that women of different generations and backgrounds have had to both lean in and to Slaughter's own philosophies, because, I mean, at their core, their philosophies are not that different. It's helping women advance, getting women into those high-paying jobs or just getting women into the workplace in general. But whereas Sheryl Sandberg is arguing that women need to do the leaning in, they need to take it upon themselves to act in certain ways and and basically behave in certain ways and take certain actions in the workplace, uh, Slaughter's philosophy falls more along the lines of, yeah – but also the whole system is
1: essentially broken. Yeah, we've got to change the workplace and especially with the work she's doing now, changing our entire approach to the caregiving economy, whether that's child care or elder care. And one thing that jumped out to me that she said in talking about um, just her the nutshell of her approach to advancing women and gender equality in the workplace, because this isn't just about women. This is about men, too, is allowing people to be ambitious but also emphasize that there's a choice of the direction that you go with that mm-hmm. ambition
2: mm-hmm.
1: so should we should, should we hear from Anne marie slaughter now now that we should, we should we have her
2: introduce herself absolutely no one does it better <laughs> it's true
3: i'm Anne marie slaughter i am the president and ceo of new america uh, and I'm a, a Meredith professor of Princeton University. Uh, and I say that because I was uh, an academic for 22 years as a law professor and uh, dean of a foreign policy school. Uh, I now run New America, which is a think tank uh, and what we call a civic enterprise, which means essentially an organization that tries to make the world a better place by thinking up new solutions from the top down and by finding people who are creating good solutions from the bottom up.
1: So, Caroline, we are going to hear so much more about those proposed solutions and the people involved in this uh, for the next half hour or so. But before we get into all of the work that she's doing and all the work that needs to be done for caregivers, um, let's get the Sheryl Sandberg issue, maybe not out of the way, but uh, for people who might be curious about it, as we were. Um, You asked her how she felt about um sort of the media narrative around that, right?
2: Yeah, I asked her about, yes, not only the media narrative, but just also to if she could explain further the differences between her approach and Sandberg's approach to this w- workplace equality issue.
3: Why women so can't have it all went, went up online and on the Atlantic website on a Wednesday night in June 2012. And I was in Scotland with my family, (laughs) trying to do work and vacation at the same time. I arrived back on Friday, two days later, and there I am on the front page of the New York Times, Sheryl Sandberg versus me. And of course, that was irresistible, and it defined the debate, even though... Uh, I think both Cheryl and I tried very hard not to feed it. So she never wanted to be on any kind of panel with me. She didn't ever want to be seen, you know, debating me, even though that's what the media wanted. Uh, and I come out of a culture of academic debate. So I, I like debate, but I don't worry about it. But I think in retrospect, she may have been very smart to do that as, don't feed that. That's not where we want to go. We don't want catfights. Um, and I did, in that original article, say that in her talk at Barnard, which gave rise to lean in, that I thought there was a note of reproach. That it was essentially saying, "If you, you have to lean in. And I was saying, hey, whoa, I have leaned in harder than anybody, well, not as hard as anybody, I know, not harder, but as hard. And yet sometimes life happens. And I don't think lean in means you sacrifice your child for your job if that's the way you see that choice. And I certainly at that point thought... This is just a job. Other people can be director of policy planning. No one else can be my teenager's parent. No one else wants to be my teenager's parent, (laughs) even if I can convince them. And he's making choices that could define the rest of his life. So what kind of person am I? Not just what kind of parent, but what kind of person am I who puts my ambition ahead of my child in that setting? That's not the person I want to be. Um, But I, I then, you know, I've talked to lots of people. I've talked to Cheryl... If you look at her book and my book, there's far more overlap than than contention. We both want women to take a seat at the table and lean in and raise their hand and speak out and be recognized. We both want that, absolutely. And we both want much better policies uh, for supporting work and family. Um, Where we differ is partly just on emphasis. I think that because powerful, wealthy women have dominated this debate, we have focused, and I include myself, not nearly as wealthy, but still on the standards of the nation, um, we focus on our issues. That's the point of the Atlantic Party. We focus on our barriers. And now what I want to say is I want to lend my voice and my thinking to to a different frame because we're not going to get to gender equality unless we address this whole spectrum. So it's emphasis. Uh, I think it is also, um, you know, she, she isn't the head of a major corporation, and I think it is harder for major corporations to push for policies that will cost business money Right? And I'm not. I've ever a nonprofit, so I can say. Although it, it costs my nonprofit a lot to offer the policies I offer, still, I'm not. I'm not a head of you know billion-dollar corporation. And um, so, so I think in terms of we agree more than we disagree. If we disagree, it's going to be in the details. But mostly it's just a, a difference of emphasis. And in that sense, I think we're very complementary. because I, I want her out there pushing women the way she's pushing women, but I want to be able to say to all those women uh, who find themselves, and increasingly men who find themselves saying, I'm ambitious, but I've got a choice here. I want to say to those people, yeah, you know, there are choices, and it's not your fault, and you can't always do it, and that's okay. That's what life is about, and we need to be helping you navigate those choices rather than telling you either they don't exist or just saying, well, you should choose your career.
2: And I don't mean to insinuate that Sheryl Sandberg's insights are not valuable, that lean-in cannot serve as a valuable tool. It absolutely can. But I think that hearing from someone like Slaughter with her own lived experiences, someone who has allowed her life experiences to shape her evolution is so important as well. Um, but moving on from lean-in and Philosophical differences. I wanted to jumpstart the rest of our interview by asking Slaughter what prompted her to write her last book, Unfinished Business.
3: Well, in 2011, I had been working as the director of policy planning for Secretary Hillary Clinton, and I left that position after two years to go home because I had a teenage son who was having an incredibly rocky adolescence and was making bad choices and His father and I wanted to both be there. I wrote an article on that experience in 2012 called Why Women Still Can't Have It All, which temporarily broke the internet. A great surprise to The Atlantic to me and I think to many other women who thought, this is not news, but it hit a generational wave. That led to a commitment to write a book, which I hadn't intended to do. Uh, I'm a foreign policy expert. I'm not a gender expert. But... The reaction to that article was so great, and I got hundreds and hundreds of emails and letters from women and men telling me their stories. So I agreed to write this book thinking I am going to lift up these voices. And then along the way I started really thinking about what has to change uh, to get to gender equality. I'm I'm an academic, I I think big. Uh, And really concluded we need a different path to finish the business of the women's movement. So that's where Unfinished Business comes from.
0: Okay. And so what does that path look like? Who, who's along that path?
3: Well, it starts by saying we've, we've done really well on breaking down the barriers to let women be men. <laughs> In the sense that... I grew up wanting to be like my father. My mother was a homemaker, my father was a lawyer. It was clear if you were going to be a, somebody of value and worth in the world of the 60s, 70s, early 80s, you were going to be like your father. So opening up the world of competition to women, the, the world of careers, the world of earning a living, the world of power and money, that's what we've done. And we've still got a ways to go, obviously. I mean, the lean in wouldn't be as important as it is if... We weren't still working on women to be confident enough and to remove the barriers of discrimination and subconscious bias to, to get women uh, to formerly male jobs. So that that's the first half of the revolution. But along the way, we completely devalued traditional women's work, the work of care. The work of not investing in yourself, but investing in others, whether those are your children or your parents or anyone who needs help and support. You might have an ill or disabled family member, or you may have perfectly healthy family members. They need support. And so that work, by devaluing it, we left women with two jobs and men with one. And when women take time out to do the work of care, they drop off not only that economically their work is not recognized, but socially they are devalued. So the second part of the revolution is to revalue the work of care and to say, wait a minute, just because women traditionally did it doesn't mean it's not incredibly important. And then to open it to men. So it's it's a complementary, you know, we need competition and breadwinning. We need care, caregiving. And we need both of those for both women and men. So men have got to be not just along for the ride as allies and helpers, which is the way we think of it when we say women want to be like men and men should help us. This is like, no, I look at my sons and I expect them to be lead parents at some point in their marriages if their wives or husbands, who knows, uh, need it just in the way that I would look at a daughter that way. I expect men and women to be equally responsible for family work.
0: Well, so what is it in our cultures, plural, why why do we devalue caregiving? Is it just because it's traditionally a woman's role? I why?
3: think so. Well, that and because it doesn't earn money. So particularly in, in the United States, I think the world over, it's devalued as women's work. And men are in charge. Women have the children, so have been expected to raise the children, although... If you go far enough back in time, you actually get to villages where men and women were hunter-gatherers and they all took care of the children and then it's much more egalitarian worlds. But now you're going back thousands, of, tens of thousands of years. Uh, in contemporary society around the world, it's women's work. That is a huge problem. I think in, in capitalist society, particularly in the United States, where, and particularly now, You know, over my lifetime, we've become far more money-obsessed than we were in the 70s and 80s. hard for younger people to know that, but I just watched my own profession of law. It used to be a profession it turned into a business. It turned into a business where it was all about who could get the most clients and earn the biggest fortune. So in that world, uh, any work that doesn't earn money is not valuable. And care is both, right? Um, And also it's... uh, it's less visible work. We're in a me culture. <laughs> hey, me, 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 Facebook, you know. And the work of care is the work of investing in others. I mean, I, I say this not only as a mother, but as a professor for many years. I took enormous pride in what my students did. And I used to often think, well, I don't care. Maybe no one will ever read an article I wrote after I die or even in five years, but my students will go on to do great things. And that's a, an indirect, Achievement, where we're in a society that is much more about direct achievement.
0: Right, exactly. Well, so who right now is working to elevate caregivers? What role is your organization playing?
3: I think the care movement is gathering steam. It's astounding. I couldn't have written this book in 2012 because I didn't believe this. I really thought, you know, my father was important as a lawyer. My mother was important as an artist, but not as a homemaker. Now I see it very differently. And over that time... You know, there the have been organizations working for a long time, like Family Values at Work with Ellen Bravo, the whole paid family leave movement, the, uh, the work of I Jin Poo and, and the National Domestic Workers Coalition, and now Caring Across Generations. So you're starting to see this gather steam. Uh, you're seeing Hillary Clinton make this a huge part of her platform. I mean, she is totally focused on how we support uh, caregivers. The Obama administration focusing on working families and how we support working families. So it is it is suddenly gathering steam. I think also we're in the midst of what, you know, Ai-jen calls an elder boom, right? Where my generation is aging, and you may not have children, but you have to have parents. And your parents are going to retire or have retired and are not... Going, they don't have retirement savings. The vast majority of American retirees cannot support their retirement, which means now we're starting to think about elder care and multi, you know how different generations support each other. So the care movement uh, is, is coming, and my own organization, uh, New America, has what we call the Better Life Lab that focuses on care in issues and um, family and social policy issues generally, and men, uh, and we and Care.com and uh, iGenFu's Caring Across Generations are launching a Who Cares Coalition to raise uh, the value of care.
0: Oh, so what, what are part of, what's part of the strategy?
3: Well, so there are multiple pieces. Uh, one is the Fair Care Pledge. So it is extraordinary that we pay the people who care for our children l- the same amount we pay people to mix our drinks, park our cars, and walk our dogs roughly nine dollars an hour that's that's well below minimum wage in various places they're not uh, pre- they are uh, not protected by just basic wage and hour protections like you could have them work 16 hours without paying overtime so you start the fair care pledge is I will pay somebody caring for my parents or for my children or anyone else a, f- a fair wage I will I will have decent working conditions any of us can do that we also need government policy, though, right? Because the problem is lots of people would like to pay their caregivers more, but it's a choice between, you know, their livelihood and the caregiver's livelihood and uh, child care for two kids costs more than the cost of rent in all 50 states. So there's a personal piece, the fair care pledge. There's advocating for paid family leave. And Secretary Clinton has a proposal that no family should have to pay more than 10% of their income for child care. I hope that'll extend to elder care. Uh, There will be a corporate piece in terms of corporations who can really support care. Uh, And then there's storytelling, right? You know, This is what's closest to our hearts, cares about our loved ones. And we need to elevate those stories of forcing a woman to choose between her job and her child or a man between his job and his child or his parent uh, and bring that into national consciousness.
1: Caroline, we've got some big news for the small screen. On July 13th, Mr. Robot is coming back to USA Network for its
2: second season. That's right. It's been hailed by Rolling Stone as the number one show of 2015 and named Best Drama by the Golden Globe and Critics' Choice Awards. Mr. Robot follows a cybersecurity engineer who's recruited by the mysterious leader of an underground group determined to bring down the world's largest corporation. But when their hack is a success, the consequences are far greater than they imagined.
1: Following the events of F Society's 5-9 hack on multinational company Evil Corp., the second season will explore the consequences of that attack, as well as the illusion of control. Starring Rami Malek and Christian Slater, Mr. Robot returns Wednesday, July 13th at 10, 9 Central, only on USA Network. So, if you're looking for something to binge on this summer... Head on over to USA Network on July 13th and tune in to Mr. Robot.
0: What generational differences have you seen um, with, you know, when you wrote your article in 2012, after you wrote your book? I'm interested in the generational differences in the responses to (laughs) these pieces and to your work in caregiving.
3: My original article, I think it is fair to say, was broadly welcomed with enormous enthusiasm by younger women, not all, but the vast majority, and rejected and intensely disliked by many of the most successful women of my generation, for reasons I understand. They felt that I was betraying what they and the generation 10 years ahead of me had had worked so hard for that by kind of pulling aside the curtain and saying, you know, I'm a really successful woman who's had a great career and I can't make this work uh, when faced with a choice between a teenage son and my career. And if I, who have every advantage under the sun, can't do this, and I'm very ambitious, we need to rethink this. They worried it was too soon, that this immediately gives employers and leaders ammunition to say, see, we've told you all along, women in the end are going to choose their families over their career, you shouldn't hire them, you shouldn't expect them to do the same thing. So young, but younger women felt like, wait a minute, of course we're just as good as any man, of course we're going to be equal, and this is just reality. <laughs> and we need, to, we need to talk about it openly. You know, this the fact is we're stuck We've been at 20% women at the, in, you know, leaders in a good industry. In bad industries, it's like 5%. So younger women really felt like, thank you for being honest. I think many, many older women, again, particularly those uh, who are in careers, felt like that honesty may be true for you, it's not true for us, and you're imperiling the gains of the movement. And then there's a whole group of women who never get to talk who are the women who have stepped out, or taken a part-time job, or deferred promotion for their care, their children, and they were enormously grateful. They are, I always say to women who went to business school, look around the audience. If you think back to your business school class, at least two-thirds are missing. And those women are the women who couldn't make it work through no fault of their own. It's not their ambition, it's life. And why those women were very grateful, but those women don't get heard from.
0: Right. And then, you know, there's so many layers in terms of socioeconomics and, and different backgrounds and cultures yes. and and you know, they, they also their horses also are often left out. So have you heard from some of these women who aren't in business schools for yes. instance, but yes. maybe they are working three separate jobs. Right.
3: Yes, so so it's interesting. And again, there needs to be a divide. So uh, part of the... I think my original article, it was frankly aimed at a very small slice of women. I said in the article, I'm writing to the Atlantic readership. This is not the women who are working three jobs. This, this is women who more or less look like me and have careers like me. Uh, and so I knew that. And um, of course, nevertheless, I critiqued for it, but that's okay. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Uh, I think... What I've come to think is that the frame of that article was wrong because inevitably when we focus on having it all or even women advancing, we're looking at a narrow slice. I mean, with that, that lens says how many women are in the Fortune 500. That's the metric, right? So, Well, okay, that at best will be 250 women and the women who aspire to that. That's a very small slice. The care frame, and this is, again, thinking very hard over three years, is much more amenable to a coalition of all women because we have too few women at the top and far too many women at the bottom. And those women at the bottom are at the bottom because they are saddled with caregiving and breadwinning both. They are single mothers. look, Look at your statistics. And so thinking about care and supporting care, that is much more likely to focus not on removing subconscious bias that prevent women from being promoted at the top and much more on things like paid family leave and access to high quality elder care and child care and flexible work that mean, you know, women who are trying to get their kids to school and uh, take care of them when they get sick and also earn a living can do so. So I now, you know, I am never going to be the leading spokeswoman for, you know, caregivers uh, in the way that I jen is, which is one reason we've allied uh, together. But I believe strongly that the women's movement now has to speak for all women. And that is much more about care policy than confidence.
0: Right, absolutely. What are, <laughs> just so our audience is clear... What type of forces are we up against in terms of enacting some of these policies? Why haven't they happened sooner? Why why is there suddenly this upswell focus on care? And basically, what do we have to do to push it through? And is it just policies that we have to turn around, or is it attitudes as well?
3: It is certainly both, and it's complicated, uh, because there have been women all along, since very early in the feminist movement, who said, wait a minute. What's holding women back is the second shift, right? Marley and Hochschild, we've all read the second shift. That was three decades ago, right? And, and so it's this is not new. And there have always been women saying, we have got to focus on issues like paid leave and child care. In 1971, Richard Nixon almost signed a bill that passed both, major- both houses of Congress by bipartisan majorities for universal child care. It's just, you imagine what it would have been like if that had happened in 1971. But he didn't, and then a couple of things happened. He didn't because it became a right-left issue. It became a moral majority issue that... You know, universal child care was socialism, and it was anti-women, because it was was insisting that women go to work and, you know, give the care of their children over to others. And it became a Christian issue, It, it, it got tangled up in the culture war of politics, which was very bad. But also then, again, and I was one, I know about what I'm talking about, women like me who wanted to make it and be equal to men wouldn't touch those kinds of gender issues with a 10 foot pole. We were going to be like men. So we would focus on discrimination in the workplace. We'd focus on closing the pay gap, but care issues, all of that smacked of essentialist stereotypes and was the kind of work we were walking away from. So then you got work family balance, but that was all about time management. (laughs) You know, I don't care how good a manager you are splitting two full-time jobs into one day when you're competing with men who are only doing one of those jobs. Sure, there's a small slice of just extraordinary women who make it work uh, and who have a huge amount of, hel- of help, but that's just not the standard. We should be holding all women, too. And what is happening now is that a growing number of women like me who have been in the kind of career women confidence feminism camp are now embracing a much more holistic care perspective. And certainly you're seeing that as women politicians get elected. That's in part because the votes are much more around care issues than they are around confidence issues. Uh, and that's because I think also we're seeing this as an economic and social issue that are, you know, we're driving women out of the workforce because they can't make it work. If it's more expensive to pay for childcare, then somebody's going to stay home. And that somebody's going to be still much more likely a woman. Uh, and it's also very bad for our families and for the next generation. You know, we've, we're, we're reaping the cost of not having parents fathers just as much as mothers able to spend the time they need not only with their young kids but with their teenagers
0: well so who is doing it right what countries what cultures what societies are doing it right who can we look to and say see their society didn't collapse because they're flexible
3: well all the nordic countries which is that's where we always go but the nordic countries are important because they're you know, they are highly competitive economies. They're not France. The Nordic countries, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Finland, they figured out how to be highly innovative. And Finland's like one of the great centers of the tech innovation world. Sweden, too, they figured out how to have much more flexible economies. They are not uh, state-governed and and restricted economies like, like some of the continental European countries are. Uh, but they have figured out how to provide uh, what I call and Ai-jen Poo call a infrastructure of care right They provide uh, maternity leave and paternity leave, and some of that paternity leave is mandatory in the sense of it's use it or lose it. If a man doesn't take it, nobody gets it that you can leave at four o'clock and do your work later or not do your work uh, and and they still manage to be highly productive uh, and competitive. Uh, They have uh, high-quality care available, some state-sponsored, some private. Uh, So those countries really are ahead of us. The French are way ahead of us in terms of providing fantastic child care. You know, parents who live in France for the first five years of their children's lives are like, why would you ever go home? Because three months in, you drop your child off at state-sponsored, high-quality care, that ensures that all kids get the kind of stimulation they need. Uh, they have, you know, home visits. That they and, and France is the only one of the, of the continental European countries where the birth rate is, is going up, right? Because they figured out if you make it easier to have kids, uh, you you can in fact increase uh, both your uh, your birth rate uh, and women in the labor force. Uh, so, but there are other countries too where, um, you know, Japan interestingly enough, recognizes they desperately need women in the workforce, and they are starting to offer, uh, make it much easier uh, for women uh, to have care alternatives. They, of course, are an aging society, and they're pioneering elder care uh, as well. And then their are individual countries. Britain has been great on things like you have a right to demand flexible work. That's a right. And so the idea that if you work part-time, you're stigmatized, Not in Britain, you know. And, you know, Britain's an Anglo-American competitive economy. They're way ahead of us on changing cultural attitudes about men and on working differently.
2: And Anne-Marie Slaughter really does believe that we can break that. We can break with this pattern. And because... Almost because the United States is so far behind in its care system, whether that's paid or unpaid, whether it's child care or elder care, we are so far behind and have so little infrastructure that we really do have the opportunity to leapfrog over some of these other countries that do have, even if they're much smaller, they do have maternity care, for instance, and we can potentially do great things. We are an innovative country. We are a country full of hardworking people. We can figure out this whole caregiving system. Yeah. and, And in that, she really believes that we can break
1: down gender stereotypes by, you know, kind of eliminating this idea that women are the natural caregivers and that men, that, because that also takes a choice away from men too, you know, men who might want to stay home or men who might want more flexible schedules. Um, and that we can achieve equality in caregiving and breadwinning, which is something we should devote a podcast to, um, bypassing policies I mean, again, like it's so clear that she is such an academic, yeah. you know and and again such a policy wonk because she really sees that as the the way forward
2: yeah, the example that she gave in the rest of our conversation was basically like, look at these countries, for instance, who never had infrastructure for landline telephones. When they caught up and when they started building infrastructure, they didn't, like, build the old infrastructure for landlines. They went straight to building cell towers. And so she said, we have an example – or we have a, a – she said, we have an opportunity in the U.S. to do that, too, to leapfrog the rest of the world. Uh, and instead of creating leave only for women or only for parents, the U.S. can now build an infrastructure of paid leave for anyone – People who are caring for children, parents, the sick or the disabled in any family. And, yeah, like you said, part of this is breaking down those gender stereotypes around what it means to be a caregiver, uh, whether that's paid or unpaid, and what it means to be uh, the breadwinner. And so thank you so much to the brilliant, warm, amazing Anne-Marie Slaughter for taking the time to talk with me uh, in New York at her office and uh, – she and I were both fresh off of getting back to New York from D.C., where we had both attended the United State of Women's Summit, which was incredible. Uh, I was just there as press. Uh, she was there as a speaker, and she was actually on a panel with ai Jin Poo um, of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Uh, they spoke together with uh, several other women on a panel called Valuing Caregiving in the 21st Century. And at the summit they announced this coalition called who cares and it's a coalition that involves slaughters organization new america which helped launch it alongside care.com and uh who's caring across generations and basically what they're doing together is working to bring attention to that important role that caregiving does play in both our society in general but specifically our economy And just highlighting and supporting that need to help our parents, our children, and ourselves by making the caregiving system easier, better, by improving the infrastructure around it.
1: And to learn more about that, you can go to whocares.org. Also, we highly recommend you follow Anna Marie Slaughter on Twitter because she is very active um, and and drops gems of wisdom all the time. Uh, You can follow her at Slaughter AM, which is S-L-A-U-G-H-T-E-R-A-M. And while you're at it, you should also follow Ijen Poo on Twitter, because together, I really think that they're just they're they're already changing the world um, and they're going to continue to.
2: Absolutely. And I think Slaughter AM sounds like an incredible morning show on the radio. So <laughs> I love it. I'm you know, Anne Marie, if you want to carry around like a sound machine or like a sound effects machine, just you know, or an air horn.
1: We're on board. We're totally I love board. that the podcasters are, are
2: pitching old school <laughs> radio radio stations. It's just too good. Um but thank you again to Anne Marie and I can't wait to hear what our listeners think? Um, you know, are you trapped in between a rock and a hard place of being in that generation, having to care for young children and also aging parents? Um, and facing a lack of support from your workplace, from your family, from people around you? Let us know. Uh, momstuff at com is
1: our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuff podcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you before
2: we head on out. All right. Well, speaking of I, Jin Poo, Creston, I have a letter here from Kathy in response to our Changemakers conversation with I, Jin Poo. She says uh, it truly hit home. I heard you both say that caregiving is a subject you would like to hit on more in depth as well. I wanted to suggest you also touch on the subject of children and young adults that are placed in a caregiver role. I'm 33 years old, and my mom was diagnosed with MS right after I was born. My brother and I were lucky in one way that my dad was the primary caretaker, but we also had to take on a caretaker role for my mom. As a child, this was hard, but even harder was when I became a young adult having to manage a career, social life, and having to help out my family. I was having to deal with things that some people in their 50s and 60s still had yet to experience with their parents. I know that this is a subject that many other children face and in even harder circumstances. I'm also seeing the effects that caregiving can have on older people as I witness my dad go from caretaker to now widower and the many struggles that brings. I'm also very inspired to see what I can do to help make a difference for others in this position. So thank you, Kathy, and I'm so glad you enjoyed that episode with ai Poo. And I hope that means that you also enjoyed our conversation today with Anne-Marie Slaughter.
1: Well, I have a letter here from Robin writing about our episode, Feminism for Sale, in which we talked to Andy Ziesler, who's the co-founder of Bitch Media and also the author of the recently released We Were Feminists Once. And Robin mentioned that she works at her university library and was really excited when uh, the library got a copy in of We Were Feminists Once. And she writes... Reading Ziesler's book and listening to your conversation has encouraged me to consider my own foray into feminism. When I started university four years ago, I didn't identify as a feminist at all. I believe I told my very feminist roommate that I didn't think, quote, those kind of issues were relevant to me. And I'm surprised her eyes didn't roll out of her head. By the end of my second term, however, I was writing an essay interrogating patriarchal conceptions of disability in the bell jar. And I started taking feminism theory courses in my second year. And since then, much of what I've written for my classes has looked at gender and sexuality. Now, a day before I officially graduate, congrats, P.S., I am proud to call myself a feminist, but I have to wonder how much of my own journey has been influenced by feminism's rising popularity. I had just finished my second year of university when Beyonce made her feminist statement at the VMAs in 2014, and since then it seems as though my personal declaration has been shared by many celebrities. I covet those undies with feminists on their rear. I'm a sucker for a good, strong female character, and I sometimes wonder if my decision not to regularly shave my legs qualifies as a feminist choice. And it's not. I just think it's a lot of work to get my leg up in the shower. (laughs) While I like to think I'm more aware of feminist conversations that have been taking place out of the limelight, I'm still undeniably influenced by the rhetoric of marketplace and choice feminism. It's a lot easier to call oneself a feminist in 2016 while ignoring political, economic and social inequalities that continue to persist around the world. Reading We Were Feminists Once and listening to wonderful podcasts like Sminty remind me to constantly interrogate my politics and refuse that kind of easy feminism, which doesn't challenge us to remake the world. Lots of love, Robin. Ah, uh, Lots of love back to you, Robin. Um, and and best of luck as you leave college into, I don't want to call it the real world because college is real, but into the next step in your in your womanhood, and in your feminism. So with that, listeners, we also want to hear from you. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about caregivers, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com.